chapter 5, verse 1. It is important um, that you note for me the first word of verse 1 of chapter 5. What is it? But. But. Well, (laughs) it could be now. In the Greek, it's a strong adversative, which is contrast. So if, if it's a contrast, but a man named Ananias, what's the contrast? The contrast with Barnabas. If you remember, I'm I'm pretty sure we ended our class last week with that, Uh, kind of as Luke does this periodically throughout the book of of Acts. He gives a a succinct summary of the church. And as as you know, in these early chapters, this is the church in Jerusalem. As it's growing and developing rapidly, and we've already seen how rapidly it's developed. And Luke had cited a man named Barnabas, who sold some of his assets, in this case a piece of land, and brought all of the proceeds to the apostles to be used to meet the needs of the growing church in Jerusalem. And we talked a little bit about that last week because, as you know, all of these early uh, folks in the church that are coming to Christ are Jews because it's Jerusalem. And for them to come to Christ is probably going to mean They're going to be ostracized by family, friends, possibly if they're young, disowned by their families, etc. So, I mean, this is costly for them to do this. Their needs are significant, their physical needs. And so you have, as Luke has done, just a summary, there's a lot going on to meet those needs. And he chooses Barnabas, who is a Levite, uh, originally from Cyprus, which is an island in the Mediterranean, but he is in... Jerusalem and has become uh, presumably an important leader. He will become a very important leader a little bit later on in the church at Antioch. The contrast is between Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira. They are husband and wife. Now, I'm going to give you an upfront set of comments here that almost uh, prejudice how we look at it, but I think it's the right way to look at it. They hatch a conspiracy among themselves, husband and wife to do something that gives the appearance of generosity, gives the appearance of spirituality, but in effect is deceitful. And so this is a very serious issue with God. As you know, if you go back to Genesis 3, deceit, Satan seeks to deceive Eve, and he's successful in doing that. And so deceit is one of the most pernicious, you know what pernicious means, one of the most pernicious of all sin. Because it can spread so quickly in its impact and and effect on other people. So with that kind of preface in mind, let's read the narrative that Luke constructs for us. But, and again, that is in contrast to Barnabas, A man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, more than likely a field, and with his wife's knowledge, this is a conspiracy. They are doing this together. Kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. That is in contrast to Barnabas, 
who sold a piece of land, a field, and gave all of the proceeds. So what is wrong here? Well, Ananias and Sapphira, they are presumably wealthy people. They own land. And as I told you last week, only about 10% of the people in Jerusalem own land. So these, these would be kind of the upper crust of Jewish society in Jerusalem at this time. And so they sell land, but they keep some of it. They make a profit. Nothing wrong with that. But they keep some of it for themselves and bring the rest to the apostles with the appearance that they've given it all. You with me? I mean, that's, that's the scenario here going on between these two individuals. So they're doing what Barnabas had done and presumably what others had done. The difference is to give the impression that they sold it and presented all of the proceeds to the apostles, that's not true. So they're giving the appearance of being very generous, being very spiritual. So in a very real sense then, their deceit reflects pride, doesn't it? Verse 3. But Peter said, notice Peter's words. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And we don't know how Peter knew that, but he obviously knew it. Excellent observation, Woody. The text doesn't tell us how he knew that. Possibly he knew how much they had sold the field for and saw how much they presented and thought, uh, there's a discrepancy here. <laughs> so, I mean, it's... Let me drive this home. Peter, using the language he uses in this rhetorical question, this is serious business. Because they're not only lying to the apostles, whom are they lying to? God, the Holy Spirit. And by the way, you might want to just note at the end of verse 4, to lie to men, but to God. In my Bible, I drew a line between to the Holy Spirit and to God. This is one of the texts in the New Testament that helps us to see that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, is God, the deity of the Holy Spirit, if you will. So Peter is, Peter is raising in this question the seriousness of what they were doing. And then he summarizes the content of their deceit to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. You gave the impression that you are giving it all, but you didn't. You kept some of the profit for yourself. Where is that impression that Ananias was giving it all? Well, because of the way Peter puts it, to keep back for yourself. You're giving the impression that you've given it all, but you're lying and you're deceived as you kept back some for yourself. You follow me? Well, maybe, but I, I guess I don't see where Anias indicated that he was giving it all but kept part back. Well, I think we are to draw the inference, to draw the conclusion that that's the impression they're making, because of the way Peter says it. 
They're giving the impression that they're giving it all. And, uh, and Barnabas did. And Barnabas did. Of that particular selling, selling of that particular piece of property, Barnabas, he gave it all. They're following. Oh, we're just like we're we're just like Barnabas, just as generous, just as spiritual. But they're not. And I mean, so it's almost like, what's the big deal here? I mean, is it really that serious? Well, we'll, we'll see what happens here in a minute. Uh, I lost my place. Verse four. Now, notice how Peter does this with a series of rhetorical questions. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? Well, the answer to that is obviously yes. And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Obviously, yes. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? In other words, the first two questions, nobody forced you to sell that land. And nobody said anything about the amount you get from the land, what you're going to do with it. Maybe you could come up to us and say, we're going to give 80% of it to, to the church and 20% we'll keep. Fine. There's no problem with that. But that is not what you did. You conspired to keep some for yourself, all the while giving the impression that you're giving it all. And the term that is used, contrived this deed in your heart. They chose deceit. They chose to be deceitful. To give the impression that everything they're laying at the disciples' feet is the total proceeds of that sale of land. But it isn't. They kept some back for themselves. And again, if you notice carefully the logic of Peter's questions, nobody was forcing you to sell it, and nobody was forcing you to give it all. But you chose to give the impression that you're giving it all. To give the impression of being just like Barnabas, just as generous and just as spiritual. But they're not. Can you comment on heart? Well, heart is, of course, figure speech, it's a metaphor. It doesn't mean that organ that pumps our blood. The heart in the Bible, Old and New Testament, is generally understood to be the center of our will. The center of our will. And so, I mean, Peter is just laying it out with crystal clear clarity. You chose to be deceitful. Nobody forced you to sell it, and nobody forced you to give 100%. But you gave the impression that you gave 100%. And the intended result you wanted was that you would be seen just as spiritual and just as generous as Barnabas. But you're not. And so he repeats at the end of verse 4, you've not lied to men, but to God. <clears throat> when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. What's that mean? He died. And great fear come upon all who heard it. Young men rose, wrapped him up, and carried him out and buried him. Um, that was 
the, the typical way they still do that today in the Middle East, they bury the same day. And they wrap them in, in, uh, in uh, uh, cloth. Uh, they, the, the typical Orthodox Jew doesn't have elaborate burials. Oh, well, anyway, I'm not telling you more than you need to know. So it's, it's a quick, it's over, it's done, but Sapphira isn't there. So the next paragraph. After an interval of about three hours, his wife, meaning Ananias' wife, Sapphira, came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter said, tell me whether uh, you sold the land for so much, meaning you know, so, so much we've heard. Is that right? She said, yeah, that was the amount. But Peter said, how is it that you agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? That phrase, test the spirit of the Lord, is a very common Old Testament phrase. It appears several times throughout the Old Testament. So another way of understanding test is deceit, to deceive the spirit of the Lord. Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out, buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Yeah. Why do you suppose God doesn't deal with deception so severely in this day and age? He does, he just delays it. I mean, he will ultimately. That's a great question, Kyle. That is a great question. Let me answer your question by throwing it out to the group. Um, why so severe? Because you are correct. You're going to see in following passages, uh, well, not only in this book, but in other parts of the uh, New Testament, where there's just as deceitful, just as duplicitous actions, and God doesn't instantaneously deal with it that way. Could it be that this is a foundational time for the church, and, and Peter is very strongly trying to direct the church in the matter of truth and the gospel and when he sees a devious from that he, he reacts very strongly and, and uh, not only does he have the power to heal he has the power to bring judgment as it was said earlier the assumption is that Ananias and Sapphira are believers they're in the church of Jerusalem there's nothing about false teaching. There's nothing about um, heresy. It's their actions. And Fred is on to something there. What I would like to do is just draw a comparison between Achan and Joshua 7. I'm not going to write all this out. And Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. Both of these, and there is real similarity here, both of these are dealing with Israel in its foundational stage, the church in its foundational stage. Remember, in, Act, in these chapters 3, 4, 5, we're only months after Jesus went back to the Father. We're not 10 years after the Lord ascended. We're only months, still A.D. 33, maybe 
early 34. Now, this you may not be as familiar with this, but the reason I, and I'm not the only one who does this, but Joshua 7 is the account of Achan. Achan was an Israelite. The time frame is the beginning of the conquest of Canaan under Joshua. They have just conquered Jericho. And if you remember, you have to go back and study that, but God had said all of the spoil from Jericho goes into the treasury of the tabernacle. All the other cities you take on Canaan, you can divvy up the spoils. But 100%, I get the first fruit. So what did Achan and his family do? They kept some, not a great deal, but they kept some of the loot from Jericho. Bar silver, special coat. And what they do with it? They hid it. And so the very next section, they go, the children of Israel go and fight the battle of Ai, and they're clobbered. They, they're clobbered. They lose. And Joshua goes to the Lord and says, Lord, why did we lose this battle? And the Lord's response is, because there's sin in the camp. And so the end, I'll stop going through all the details, but the end result is Achan and his family are killed. And so there's very real similarity between this and this. This is the foundational months of the early church. Are you going to tolerate deceit and pride and false spirituality because the church is the body of Christ. The church is to be holy. The church is to represent him. And so in the same sense, God deals instantaneously with these two people. And one of the important points of both of these, Joshua 7 and Acts 5, is there's no such thing as a secret sin. You understand what I mean by that? In other words, you may think, I don't mean you specifically, I'm using it just in kind of a teaching way. You may think that no one knows of the sin that you've committed against the church. And I mean, in this case. But who does? God does. And Paul in 1 Corinthians, I believe it's chapter <laughs> Chapter 6, where a young man in the church at Corinth is living in an incestuous relationship with his mother-in-law, with his stepmother, I think it is. It's an incestuous relationship, and the church is okay with that. The church is letting him do it. And Paul says, you can't do that. You must deal with this young man. And then he quotes a proverb, because a little leaven... Leaven's the whole lump. That's a proverb. You, you all know what leaven is, don't you? Okay. Because leaven is often a symbol in the scriptures of sin. And so this is really serious business to God. The foundation stones of the church are being laid. We're still in Jerusalem. We're months after Jesus went back to the Father. And this is so serious because of the implications it could have. Here are leaders in the Jerusalem church giving the appearance of generosity. 
the appearance of spirituality, but they're not. And God draws the line in the sand and says, we're going to deal with this immediately. Because the church is called to be holy. The church is called to be the salt and light representing him to the world. And so the Lord deals with this instantaneously. Now, God's question is a good one. God does not ignore deceit. He deals with it. Sometimes in space and time, sometimes in the future. So at this point, um, let me see if you have questions or comments or, or thoughts. When God defers judgment, it's a dimension of his grace. When God chooses to instantaneously deal with sin and deceit, it's still evidence of his grace. All right? Feedback, questions, protest? This didn't have anything to do with money at all. No, no, that's what Peter's... Yeah, Peter's rhetorical question. This isn't really about the money. It's what's going on in your heart. And I I just love how those questions are. When that land was still yours, nobody's forcing you to sell it. And after it was sold, the money's your disposal. If you choose to only give 70% of it or 50% of it or 20, it doesn't matter. But you gave the impression you were giving it all. In your heart, You hatch the plan of deceit to give the impression of something by your actions that isn't true. It carries through through our whole life. We Mm -hmm. may go to church and and pretend to be a Christian, but then do things that a Christian wouldn't do, and, and other people would witness it. Would give that impression that we were, you know, straight up kind of guy. My mother used to say to me when I was a little boy, Jimmy, now remember, she's the only one, nobody else calls me that. I shoot people who call me that. No, I'm just kidding. But, Jimmy, be sure your sins will find you out. Did your mothers ever say that to you? My mother always said that. Because I was a rascal, I really was. Be sure your sins, it, it, it will, it will come out. It will be revealed. And one of the important points, and I put it as both of these, there's no such thing as a secret sin. You know, that, that is really, that is really a premise that you and I should let drill deeply into our minds and hearts. There is no such thing as a secret sin. You may think, you know, you can just normally say, well, God knows, but nobody else does. And I'm not going to tell, and I doubt he's going to tell right now. You know, that's kind of the rationalization of it. I've been reading a good bit on this unbelievable tragedy out in Colorado of this relatively young family. Did you see that? Where this young man killed his wife who was pregnant and presumably, despite what he said, his two little girls. 
And just thinking about that. And then yesterday it came out, at least that's when I saw it come out, that he had been having an adulterous affair with a co-worker where he worked. He had hidden it for a while, and then his wife found out about it. And that's what the altercation was about that resulted, presumably, in him killing her. He thought he was getting away with it. He thought nobody else knew about it. It came out, and look at the tragic results of that. There is no such thing as a secret sin. See, the importance of, of this material here with Aiken and now with Ananias and Sapphira if they would have, if Peter would have ignored that and not dealt with it, it probably would have come out. It probably, and we, Woody, I think said, "How did Peter know about this? We don't know. Maybe others knew about it. Maybe others knew that the profit they had made on. We don't know any of that. But you see, if you let it go and don't deal with it, it's going to come out, and it will affect the whole body." I've been reading as well, I don't know how much you know about this guy, but Bill Hybels, who is the founder and leader of Willow Creek, it has come out now, some of the things that happened to him over the years with other women, including a very, very close aide of his who's administrative assistant, and oral sex was involved in a whole bunch of things. Just say, he hid all that. He hid all that from this leadership team. That's crushing in its impact on Willow Creek. Crushing. There's no such thing. Oh, that's another. Uh, uh, yes, the, the, the thoroughgoing nature of there in the East and in Pennsylvania, particularly. That's devastating for the witness and for everything the church stands for. And what is coming out is some of those leaders hit all that, covered it up, just moved them on. That's, it will come out. <laughs> Jim, can you and God is just saying, as the church is beginning, you cannot wink at this, Peter. Deal with it decisively. Just like Joshua dealt decisively with Achan. That's right. Um, can you sin against God but not against man? And then contrast with, can you sin? If you sin against man, that's a little easier to track on if you're sinning against God. Um, if, if we're defining it as sin to begin with. So, can you sin against God and not sin against man? Well, by definition, sin is rebellion against God. So no matter what the sin is, it's always against God. My argument would be, in terms of this observation here, is that, uh, let me put it this way, undealt with sin will affect other people. So if you want to call that sinning against man or sinning against others, that would be, that would be I, I think, a, a way to say yes. It affects others. And see, that's why I, I, in one of my other classes, we're, we're, uh, we're going through First John. We just started it. And John is, in those very early verses, is setting up a series of tests of fellowship. 
And if you say you have no sin in your life, remember what John says? You're a liar. And the truth is not in you. So then he, he, he gives the corrective, then how do I deal with that? And secondly, if you say you do not sin, you're sinless, you're perfect, you are a liar, and the truth is not in you. <laughs> so what's the corrective? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the, the pattern that the scriptures say for you and me is, Sin is part of who you are. God has redeemed you. He saved you, but you still have the capacity to sin. <clears throat> Deal with your sin by confessing it to him. Confess means to agree with God. Bill Bright used to say, keep your account short with God. Deal with him instantly. See, that's the check you and I have. And if, if you need to make recompense or heal relationships or ask forgiveness from I can't tell you how many times in my life I've asked people to forgive me for things I did or things I said because that that is the way in which a repentant righteous heart who's walking with God deals with things like this Ananias and Sapphira if that had gone unchecked could have, like, leavened. It could have eaten into the early Jerusalem church and affected a great number of people. It comes to me that Ananias, as a leader of his household, pulled his wife into that sin, That's correct. As we can do to our family. That's I correct. Assume. That's correct. So he has a kind of a double responsibility. That's this. correct. That's exactly right. Exactly right. But it says with his wife, though, so the two of them were in coercion. But could you imagine if he'd have been all in? She probably would have been all in, too. But in the point you're making, though, is he was not, regardless of where Sapphire is in this, he is not being the spiritual leader of his home. He is not. I mean, if he is seriously in walking with the Lord, then he should have said, we're going to sell this piece of land and we're, we're going to keep 20% of it for ourselves. We're going to make I mean, a great profit and we're going to keep, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. And you just say, we're going to give 80% to the Lord. This is what we're laying to feet. And that's all right, because as Peter says, nobody forced you to do this. But you're doing it with the motive of deceit. You want people to reach a conclusion about you that isn't true. You want to appear to be super generous, just like Barnabas, super spiritual, just like Barnabas, and you're not. This is a hard one. So your thought paper is, in your opinion, why was God so, so severe in disciplining Ananias and Sapphira? thousand words or less. <clears throat> verse 12 through verse 16. Here's another one of Luke's summaries of what's going on in the church. Now many signs and wonders, remember that signs and wonders phrase, we looked at that last week, is that messianic phrase. These are messianic miracles. These are Jews 
months after Jesus went back to the Father, there's still these methods to draw people to the conclusion that Jesus is the Messiah. We're regularly dying among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. We, we talked about that a couple weeks ago. You know, it's that, that, that portico, that little roofed-in area along the eastern side of Temple Mount. I showed you pictures of that. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women of all the early historians in the Gospels or here in Acts, Luke, more than others, stresses how women are being impacted by the Gospel. So he says here, both men and women are being added to the church. So that even they carried out the sick into the streets, laid them on cots and mats, and as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on them. This is an ancient Near Eastern superstition. The shadow is the extension of the person. This Holy Spirit doesn't approve of this, doesn't make a judgment, just says they do it. The people gathered from towns around Jerusalem bringing their sick, and those afflicted with unclean spirits, both physically sick and demonic possession, are being dealt with. Because, now listen to me, Jesus Christ is plundering the kingdom of Satan. And it goes on today. This is another way of saying this. Jesus has begun plundering the kingdom of Satan. And it's continuing today. Because remember, Jesus refers to Satan as the god of this age, the prince of the power of the air. This planet is in rebellion against God, and the leader of that rebellion is Satan. And every time a human being comes to faith in Christ, Satan loses. His kingdom is further being plundered, which is what Jesus is doing. It will culminate, as you know, in his second coming and the destruction of of Satan's kingdom and so on. All right, the little pithy summary of what's happening in the church in Jerusalem in these early months is over now we switch to another segment of the narrative. Yeah, please, please. I'm sorry, say it again. Verse 13. Verse 13. None of the rest there join them. Okay, yeah, that's a good question. I, I didn't address that. None of the rest. In other words, what we see are the apostles are prominently going to Temple Mount along Solomon's portico. But the rest aren't. The rest who? Well, we know from from our earlier discussions, you have the original 11 plus Matthias makes 12. Then you have as many as 120. They're not being as prominent. They're holding back. So a lot of the other people who have joined the church, they're, they're they're not doing what the apostles Peter, James, John are doing. And so they're holding back. They're afraid. I'd be afraid. Wouldn't you? I mean, because remember these guys, you have to always remember this. We're so used to reading these little stories and narratives as Luke is recording them for us as history. Remember, they are in the middle of hostile territory. The people of Jerusalem are not embracing them. The Sadducees we're going to read about in the next section, verse 17 and following, are not against, not with them. They're they're against them. They want to kill them. 
So when they're on Temple Mount walking along the eastern gate along the south portico, they're taking their life in their hands. And so the rest are holding back. We're not that bold. We're not going to do that. That's what I'd be. I'd be home drinking coffee and watching a NASCAR race or something like that. I'm making a joke. Two people laughed. Nobody got it. But, I mean, it's just it's to reflect and help us to remember this is dangerous business, and that's what verse 17 is going to be all about. Jim, don't you think, though, that we need to be bold today? Uh, I mean, we are not perfect, but if we walk by our convictions in this word that we are talking about today, our belief that God will give us the strength that we need in this situation. Sure, absolutely. No, I mean, I was yeah, being humorous, but I mean, we we want to be bold in seizing those divine appointments that God sends our way. We do. We don't want to shun it. We don't want to. If God gives us the opportunity, I um, I was speaking at a a group yesterday in, in a church and over the lunch hour. And there's a man I've known for decades. Uh, almost one of the first people I really got to know when I came to Omaha. He's now 95, and um, he's really sick. He, he's quite sick. But he's in the hospital, and I asked the, uh, the leader of the group, I said, uh, how's Joe doing? He said, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. He said, every person that comes into his room, he tells them about Jesus. He said, I went in yesterday, and there were three people around Joe's bed, and they're singing hymns. I mean, this is in a hospital, you know, this isn't in church. I mean, and, and that's just, I've known him, well, he's very bold, he's very, he's very certain, his, his convictions about Christ are deep, but he's also, he's an evangelist, he's a very, very successful businessman, very successful, but he's also an evangelist, he does not, and, and so in these last, I, I assume, these last days of his life, what's he doing? He's suffering. He's in a lot of pain. It's very difficult. He's not gonna. He's not gonna live very much longer. But everyone that comes into his room hears about Jesus. He's being bold. He's taking advantage of what Urban McManus calls those divine appointments. He's taking advantage of every single one. That's, uh, that's a good testimony to share about him. But I wanna. Uh, just say that I'm really glad that we're in the Acts. For some reason, I, I had some ignorance about uh, the thoroughness and depth that the apostles were able to do miracles, and the fact that, that Peter's shadow could heal somebody, you know, is amazing to me. And uh, I guess I'm going to learn a lot more about what, what the apostles did and could do. And as, as I said when we were going through that, these are messianic miracles to drive people in Jerusalem who are Jews to understand that Jesus is Messiah. Because all of the prophecies about Messiah in the Old Testament said that Messiah will do these things. Heal the sick, give sight to the blind, etc., etc. That's exactly what Jesus did. Therefore, he's the Messiah. That is still continuing, even though he's going back to the Father in Jerusalem. You will this once we're out of Jerusalem, you're going to see this is diminished a bit. You don't see as much of it. You still see some of it, but in Jerusalem it's just constant because these are Jews. These are messianic miracles. 
to make the case that Jesus is the Messiah. Embrace him. All right, let's move on. We've got about 15 minutes here. All right, now, the first word of verse 17 is another but. In contrast to the number of people in Jerusalem who are responding, you have the leadership. What are they doing? But the high priest rose up. High priest is Caiaphas. Rose up, and all who were with him. And then Luke adds in parenthesis. That is the party of the Sadducees. Now, do you remember a couple of weeks ago, because I listed it on the board, some of the characteristics of the Pharisees? Please tell me somebody remembers that. Two of you remember it, but if I ask you exactly, you might not remember. The Pharisees were the majority on the Sanhedrin. The Sadducees were the wealthy aristocrats of first century Judaism. If you would go with me to Jerusalem, I take you under what, what are called the Herodian houses. They're in the old quarter, and you go down because, you know, cities are built in layers over history. And you see these unbelievable homes that they lived in. Indoor plumbing, huge frescoes on their floors, marble, and just extremely wealthy. These are Sadducees. But they're anti-supernaturalists of the day. They deny the resurrection. They deny the existence of angels. And they only trust the first five books of the Old Testament. They don't study the prophets, major or minor. So these are the people that have the most to lose, financially speaking, if Jesus is the Messiah. And so Caiaphas, the chief priest, and the Sadducees rise up why? What does Luke tell us? Hint, it's the last phrase of verse 17. They're jealous. They are threatened by what the apostles are doing. They're challenging their authority. They're challenging their teaching. They're challenging their position. So if the apostles are successful... In proclaiming that Jesus is Messiah and more and more people come to faith, that means the Sadducees are going to lose. So as they did with Jesus, they reached this conclusion. These guys have got to go. So what do they do? Verse 18. They arrested them and put them in the public prison. Now that little adjective that Luke chooses to use, the public position, prison, this isn't, well, I wish I could take you now to Jerusalem, but if we go on Temple Mount, in the northwest corner of Temple Mount are the ruins of the Antonia Fortress. The great fortress where Jesus was put on trial, where Pilate was and all that, in the basement of that fortress is a prison. That's not the one they're put in. They're put in a prominent public prison west of that. Now, why make it public? Clear public display of their authority. Well, it's, like, it's like putting someone in the stocks. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, it's very public. We're greater than these guys. We're going to shut them up. We're going to make examples of them. I mean, that's what Luke is telling us when he says it's public. 
verse 19. This is just, this is hilarious. I mean, this is just hilarious. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors, please note it's plural, and brought them out because there were a series of gates into these prisons. Not just one, there's a series of them. So all the doors are open. And this is what the angel said. Go, verse 20, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. What life? Eternal life. All that Jesus offers. So what were they doing? We read it in verse 12 and 13. They're on Temple Mount in Solomon's portico, walking up and down, telling people about Jesus. They're arrested by the Sadducees. An angel comes in, releases them, says, go back to Temple Mount and keep preaching. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, this is hilarious. Just listen to this. Listen to this language. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with them, they called together the council. The council would be the Sanhedrin, the Senate of all the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. Now, the Sanhedrin only met in the morning when they're going to meet a court. So they're ready to do this. They said, okay, bring the prisoners here. We're going to put them on trial. Verse 22. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked. The guards are standing at the doors, but we opened them. No one's inside. (laughs) Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them wondering what this would come to. And someone came. We don't know who it is. Luke doesn't tell us. And told them, look, the men whom you put in prison, they're standing in the temple and teaching the people. I mean, did you see the irony of all this? You're supposed to say yes. yes. I mean, it's, you know, they thought they were in control. They're going to lock these guys up, put them in a prison, put them on display. But the Lord has a totally different idea in mind. I'm going to release them. It's going to demand a supernatural explanation. And I'm going to have these guys back on Temple Mount preaching about Jesus. Yeah. And note they didn't run up the hills. They were in their face. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's obedient response instantaneously. Okay, we're going back to Temple Mount. We're going to keep teaching the people about Jesus. Text tells us in verse 26... Then the captain with the officers, this is the captain, who's the head of the temple police. Uh, the Sanhedrin had a, a, a police force made up of Roman citizens, but the head of that was a Jewish leader. He went and brought them, meaning he goes to Temple Mount, brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Conclusion we're supposed to reach, the people are with Peter and John. They like what they're saying. And so the officials of the Sanhedrin, and particularly the police force, they're not going to create a riot. So I don't know what they did. Hey, Peter and John, listen. We got a whole big cup of Starbucks coffee brewing for you. We got some donuts. Jimmy John's delivered some of this. Come over for lunch. We just want to talk to you. I don't know how they got them there. Luke doesn't tell us, but they came. Now, this is what is almost unbelievably hilarious. 
And when they brought them, I'm in verse 27, they set them before the council. This is the Sanhedrin. This would be in a circle. Sanhedrin met in a circle, and these guys are right in the center. And the high priest, this would be Caiaphas, questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in his name. That's right. <laughs> what did Caiaphas not ask them? How'd you get out? They don't ask him that. Nowhere did they ask him that question. Nowhere did they try to explain, how did you guys end up back on Temple Mount? Because my guards went to the prison, it's still locked, and the guards are standing there, but you're not in there. How'd that happen? Now listen, what's the only conclusion they could have reached? I mean, God had to do this. There's no other explanation for this. But they are unwilling to admit that, so they ignore the question. And they go back, didn't we tell you not to teach in the name of Jesus Christ in this name? Chapter 4, verse 17 and 18 was the order they given. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And that's not hyperbole. That's pretty accurate. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. What do they mean by that? Mm -hmm. the end result of what you are teaching is you're laying the blood of this man at our feet. The people are reaching the conclusion that we, we are the ones that are guilty of his blood. Huh? That's right. I mean, it's just, it's the, the amazing conclusions they're reaching, in a sense, are the right conclusions. Peter responds in verse 29. We must obey God rather than man. We would call this civil disobedience. They're choosing to directly, consciously, intentionally disobey. And as you know, with disobedience, civil disobedience, comes the willingness to accept punishment. They're willing to accept going to jail. But listen, God told us to proclaim that Jesus is the Messiah. We're not going to stop doing it, no matter what you say. But then he goes on. Now, we only got about five minutes, but I really, I would really like to finish this. Thank you. Verse 30. <laughs> the God of our fathers... Why did Peter put it that way? Who are the fathers? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God who made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God whom you love and you worship and you say you represent. The covenant-making, covenant-keeping Yahweh of the Old Testament, as we would put it. He raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. There is a clear allusion to Deuteronomy 32 there. Cursed is he who hangs on a tree. You did that. Verse 31, 
But God exalted him at his right hand. Um, I think, I don't have it written down, but I think it's Deuteronomy 32, 31. I think. But God has exalted him at his right hand. The God, who? The God of our fathers. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Exalted him as, as the leader. An unusual word. Archegos is the Greek word preeminent in his position. Preeminent in his authority. Other parts of the scriptures say because he obeyed his father in his death, burial, and resurrection, the father exalted him as Lord of the universe and Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness to sin. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Now remember, 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 he's speaking to Jews, he's speaking to Jewish leaders who would understand that the Holy Spirit is the sign and inaugurator of the new covenant. So this isn't just an aside, this zeroes in on the importance of the Holy Spirit. The new order has begun, the new covenant era has begun. And now listen. You're a Jew. You believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The logical consequence is you need to accept Jesus Christ as Messiah of Israel. Because he is. And the evidence is absolutely, <clears throat> excuse me, absolutely compelling. If you're a Jew and you're a faithful Jew, the only logical consequence is you have to embrace Jesus. Boy, Peter takes advantage of every teachable moment, doesn't he? Just nails these guys. He is pouring it on. But he's forcing them to make a decision. He's forcing them. Now, I still have three minutes. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. So they're not responding. In any way, okay, we'll consider it. No. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, teacher of the law, Gamaliel is Gamaliel I. He is the most famous rabbi of the first century. He was the teacher of the Apostle Paul. I'm serious. This is, this is the most prominent rabbi of the first century. He's on the, He stands up. He's held in honor. He stood up. And gave orders to put the men outside for a while. You guys go get a cup of coffee. We'll call you when we're ready for you to come back. I made that up, but I think you get the point. And he said, men of Israel, take care of what you're about to do. Now listen to the logic of Gamaliel. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. We're not sure who that is. Second example, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census. That's A.D. 6. We know exactly what he's referring to. This is a major historical event. He drew away some of the people after tomb. But he, too, was killed and people were scattered. Judas the Galilean in A.D. 6 led a major revolt of the Jews against the taxation policies of the Roman Empire. But Rome killed him. And the people were scattered. Verse 38. So in this present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. 
For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. Just like Judas, just like Judas the Galilean. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You will be found opposing God. Gamaliel I is speaking wisdom here. If this is a man-centered, man-hatched movement, it'll die just like all the other ones do. But if this is of God, you'll never stop it. You, in effect, will be an enemy of God. So what is, what is Gamaliel saying? Hold back. Let's see what happens. These are very popular guys right now. They've got a large following in Jerusalem. Let's see what happens. And so they back off. They took his advice. And when they called in the apostles, they beat them, possibly with the 39 stripes. The text doesn't tell us. Charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, which is ludicrous. They're not going to obey that. And let them go. Now, I think verse 41 is most of the, one of the most astounding verses in the whole Bible. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. That is hard for me to identify. They're walking out of Caiaphas' house, which is on the, the west side, kind of the southwest side of Mount Zion. And they're walking down the valley, considering it such an honor to suffer for the name of Jesus. That's amazing, isn't it? Now look, what Luke is saying is, what Gamaliel I said is true. You're never going to stop a group of people that feel this way. That they're even willing to suffer for Jesus. You'll never stop it. And they can't. These guys are going to change the world. So Gamaliel's wisdom is the wisdom they follow. And they don't cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ, Jesus as the Messiah. I couldn't imagine when I sat down here that we were going to get this far, but I wanted to get all this done today, so I kind of hurried so we can get all of it into the one unit. It's an amazing chapter, isn't it? Yes. Three of you agree. All right, that's good. Well, next week we'll pick up, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll pick up with this section that continues here. Uh, follows and chapter six is a great chapter on leadership it really is that's how i'm going to teach it a great chapter on leadership but we'll get to that next week all right let me pray i'm a little late but i wanted to finish this one again it's good to have you with us jim will be praying for you let us know if there are some specific things as we go forward lord thank you for our time around the word of god thank you for this powerful chapter not only the, the, the importance of Ananias and Sapphira, how to understand what's going on there in these early days of the church, but also this extraordinary, extraordinary interchange between Peter and the Sanhedrin, particularly the Sadducees. And the wisdom of Gamaliel, if this is of God, you'll never stop it. And through the last 2,000 years, no matter where the gospel is preached, 
as people push back, as governing authorities try to stop it, they can't. Because people who are committed to Jesus are willing to suffer to spread the name of Christ. That's what martyrdom has been through the history of the church. It continues today in many parts of our world. So, Lord, in our lives, give us boldness. As my friend Joe in that hospital room, he is still in these last days of his life telling people about Jesus. May we have that same boldness and that same passion. We desire, Lord, to represent you. May we represent you well to the glory of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. See you next week.